This is Monica Perez here with Daniel Natal, an ethicist, podcaster, writer, and more. Super fascinating guy whose knowledge is also fascinating, but I want to hear a little bit about him first. Hi, Daniel. Thank you for being here. Hey, thanks for having me on, Monica. It's a great pleasure. I've uh, enjoyed many of your your broadcasts. Thank you so much. Well, I have to say you were on Herbore Morich's show uh, several times, but most recently I got several emails saying, you got to talk to this guy. And I think it's because my favorite question I ask basically everybody, it tells me, gives me some insight into maybe truth, but also into them. But you might actually have an answer to this is what's the true nature of power on earth and in the universe? And I feel like that's like where you started with Herbore. And, but I um, was looking into your background and I'm just fascinated by, I don't know if it's your, it's your day job or what, but uh, tell me about your ethics work. Yeah, well, I mean, you can, uh, your, your uh, viewers can go to uh, amazon.com and buy my book, Actionable Ethics. Um, <laughs> there you go, <laughs> at better bookstores. Uh, yeah, no, uh, so essentially um, I was doing ethics uh, work with, uh, with a company uh, some years ago and we did uh, essentially business ethics training and, and stuff. And then from there, I got asked to do uh, kind of political commentary with an ethics slant and that's how I got into the podcasting thing. And I still do uh, some ethics things, uh, like for instance, I, I do ethics coaching with kid, kids, and uh, you know, give them little kind of training in morality and stuff that they lack. Uh, you know, that the, the school system doesn't provide, their parents don't provide, the culture doesn't provide, and um, you know, so I, I usually end up uh, making wor little worksheets for the children and say, "Hey, there you go," and uh, we discuss those, <laughs> and I give them moral challenges and stuff like that. But yeah, but I so so essentially, I was asked by a, a magazine called The New American to do um, kind of political commentary, but through like an ethical like lens. And that's how I kind of got into political commentary, just uh, kind of looking at how, you know, kind of global events, events are unfolding and seeing, you know, kind of putting them into a historical or philosophical or, or moral uh, light, uh, you know, just because very few people do it from that angle. So yeah, I have actually a few responses to that, that first of all, my father always taught me was very regimented about teaching us um, morals. And he said, like, if you go through life with a touchstone, a moral touchstone, if you really know the difference between right and wrong, you won't have to agonize. You'll just know the answer to questions. You, you, your life will just be a little more orderly. You'll be quicker to the punch and you'll live a better life. And I found that was true. And then when I was on the radio, I had a radio show on like terrestrial radio and it was a conservative show a conservative channel but i was by then already an anarcho-capitalist i was like i really don't buy into the republican thing i can't i can't do that for you i understand the bill of rights as a restraint on government i can i can give you that but i had to they were like yeah say whatever you want and i and but they were it was important to them that i had a brand and i was just a libertarian and what i found was the best way to do the job was every single issue that came up and actually Amash used to do this on his Facebook page for every vote in Congress that he made, Justin Amash, he would tell his constitutional grounds for it. But I would look at every question from a libertarian perspective, which I consider to be a moral perspective. Don't kill, don't steal was basically the basis of it. And it was just very easy for me to process through the news to know what I thought about it. And a lot of kids these days, my, my children 
my teenagers, they complain that their classmates literally wait to find out what they're supposed to think about something. They can't really answer. They giggle if you ask them something. And then when you tell them the answer, then they spout it off. So that I, I found that interesting. And now I have a, an ethical question for you or something that happens to me. Tell me your response. Sure. So when I was in, I was an investment banker for a while when I first got out of graduate school. Okay, and stop right there. That's unethical. We don't need to go any further when you said no, investment. No, that's no, yeah, <laughs> no, actually I was a high yield investment banker and I found that to be ethical because it was, what did I used to say? It was a, a dollar earned, a dollar lent, a dollar borrowed, a dollar spent. I love that poem you wrote. Yeah. Yeah. I made that up because <laughs> it's not fractional reserve. It's actually totally arm's length transactions. And you know what the risk is. There's all these security, like, uh, it was like a, you know, it was fenced in. So anything outside the system, you couldn't, it would, you would go to jail basically if you let anything escape the system. But if you just piss the money away, driving your business into the ground, well, then the debtor, you know, the creditor would, would lose. But I used to write red herrings, whatever prospectuses for these bond deals. And I remember like thinking like, that doesn't seem right. This doesn't seem right. And I would say to my boss, like, this doesn't seem right. And he would say, never to, he said, first of all, if something doesn't seem right to you, call the lawyer, you know, tell me, but call the lawyer. And he said, never, ever take any chances, never, you know, hide anything, never, whatever. But if the lawyer says it's okay, then it's okay. And I agreed with that because that was the law. You know what I mean? That was the law. So everyone knew yeah. it. It was a fiduciary duty. It was an arm's length thing. And if you violated that secretly because your own ethics are different, you were you were failing to serve your client and you weren't doing the opposition any any good because they know what what the what the rules of the game are. Does that sound right to you? Or how would you how would you tell me, young Monica, how how to handle it? Well, Susan Leoto, she's an ethicist, and she says that uh, law is the lowest common denominator. Ethics actually asks for more. Right. So like if you're just doing what's legal, because what's legal is not necessarily always what's moral. Like if you're in a, in a dictatorship and it is legal to persecute yes, an ethnic yes. minority or it is legal to, you know, kind of, or even in our country where it is legal to racially discriminate against people, uh, it is still unethical, um, right. even if the law allows you to do it. But I mean, but as a general baseline rule, you know, he was he was basically teaching you an ethical precept in the sense of prudence. Right. I mean, I don't do anything if, if, a, if a lawyer tells you don't just guess, you know, uh, right. or don't kind of just, you know, supersede it with your own, you know. Um, so he was, he was, you know, teaching you how not to get sued. And right. that's part of ethics, right? And not to take um, it on yourself too. Yeah. He was yeah. like, don't take it. Yeah. But there, but I felt like, because that was a contractual situation mm -hmm. and it was very clear what the rules are, like that was your primary duty was to abide by the rules that were agreed upon by everybody. And I thought that was okay. I didn't necessarily, I don't know. Like I remember I had a picture mm -hmm for the cover of the prospectus and it was like a construction company and he's like, have them clean it up. So I went to the like printer and I was like, can you make the tractors look better? And they were like, no. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh, wow. Yeah. Right. <laughs> gotcha. Yeah. There, there's a, there's a great book uh, by Marjorie Kelly called the divine right of capital. And uh, she goes through a lot of these issues um, and she's kind of on the pol politically on the other side of me uh, nominally. Right. Uh, but she she makes a lot of good points, you know, regarding these issues like in uh, she goes through 
what, who was it? Was it, it was GM or whatever. It was the, the Dodge brothers and they were, no, it was Dodge brothers suing Ford. And that's when the precedent was set that the, the, the telos, the goal of a corporation is to make money for its shareholders, not for its employees, not for the community. Cause Henry Ford Agreed. wanted not, to not, not stakeholders. Yeah, exactly. So Henry Henry Ford <laughs> wanted to to you know pay his his employees a much higher you know wage, and he was trying to you know kind of get the other business leaders to do that as well to be to be humane. And then the Dodge brothers sued, and then said, "No, they, you know you're not there to help your employees. You're there to help the stockholders." And so ever since then, that has been the uh, the kind of baseline understanding. But uh, with ESG and all these other things, they're starting to kind of get in pseudo morality, quasi like fake morality. They call it uh, paramorality and in, in the uh, the concept of uh, political ponderology. When, when oh you're in a, yeah, a, I have a, a, a book called Political Ponderology. <laughs> yeah, and they exactly, and they have uh, you know the paramorality evolves in a totalitarian state where it pretends to be morality, but it's actually not morality. And you know? I actually think when you get to those levels, stakeholders and all that, it's so it's um so prone to corruption, hijacking, fraud, all that. So that's why I fall out on the side and I'm I'm just a dilettante. I don't know what I'm, you know, I don't scratch the surface on this, but I've read that the platonic system was basically characterized the dark ages and the Catholic Church and the Dark Ages, I could be wrong, correct me, but the, my point is that Aquinas shifted us to Aristotle, and I always liked that better because I thought that puts the the individual who has the ability to control the action in full, have full responsibility. I, and to put it more simply, like the welfare state requires force on you to give, but charity doesn't it's internal so anyway we could launch we could launch our conversation on that because the dark ages is what where you started um well i've, I've got a friend named rebecca my friend rebecca is a catholic who's watching hi rebecca if you're there um so uh rebecca and i have all these conversations about catholicism and uh we were talking about how you know uh, the Middle Ages was essentially a platonic uh, system in, insofar oh. as you had, yeah, insofar as you had a priest class that wasn't married. So so nepotism was kind of taken off the table. Yeah, uh, they about, pulled the best out of the families and made yeah. them the little, yeah, went well, to philosophy school. <laughs> yeah, back then the, 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 yeah. Or the, the government was, look, the third branch of government, we're thinking, we usually think the third branch of government is the people, but no, it was actually the church. It was the aristocrats, the king, and the church. And so it was very prestigious for a family to to, to donate one of their children to w all three of those, you know, kind of categories. Yes. And it would be like the comparable to being in Senate. Oh, my son is a senator. Well, back then it was my son is a bishop or something. Not and, even that uh, long ago. I mean, my yeah. mother would have been very happy if one of her kids had become a clergyman. Yeah. And and so that that was the power dynamic. And so when you have people ruling the society who don't have a nepotistic interest like like uh, in in the republic plato talks about that like about how uh the gold class that rules the society can't have a family the russian mob does that too as well because it's harder to blackmail and bribe wow. someone who don't have a family yeah and so so you basically had so i was asking her i was like why, it seems a little inhumane i mean like the orthodox they're allowed to marry the protestants marry and i was like why why does the catholic church still kind of cling to that and she said you like plato don't you and and yeah and i agree you had a far less 
for a long time. I mean, we're, we're, we're fed a, a steady diet of propaganda about the corruption of the Catholic Church, but for long periods of time, I've got a friend who works at the Central Bank of Canada, and he's doing a study about how even, even during the colonial period, uh, you know, the 18th, 19th century, when the Catholic Church did settlements, um, how most of the money actually did go back to the people. When they tithed, it would go back into building roads, it would go back into infrastructure, aqueducts, into social programs, like when you retired and all, all this kind of stuff. And they really weren't getting rich off of it, uh, uh, unlike the Protestant corporations that were set up like companies. You know, the, the, the Virginia Corporation was literally a corporation that you could trade stock on, or the Plymouth Corporation that turns into Massachusetts, and they were vastly more predatory, <laughs> where they yeah. aggregated wealth to like six people, as opposed to it kind of diffusing, uh, because it was a very different, uh, you know, kind of social system, Catholic Church. I mean, it doesn't get credit for that. So he's doing a study right now. He's doing a paper. I hope I'm not a you know, betraying uh, scooping his trust. Him? <laughs> yes. Well, I, I've always, I've never been sympathetic with the cause of wanting priests to get married because it's just a distraction. I mean, that has to be your number one. Yeah, you can't be working towards the, the um, future of your children at the expense of the children that you are in, uh, entrusted with in the church. But so <coughs> Trump, <coughs> Trump. <laughs> oh, oh my gosh, that's so interesting because I think Trump is totally fake, a uh, complete actor, P.T. Barnum all the way. Um, I love Trump supporters. Like my mom is a huge Trump supporter. My brother, like I, the some of the best people are Trump supporters. I like his rhetoric. Yeah, yeah I mean, and he does say say some. I mean, I prefer Ron Paul's rhetoric, but. He, I, I always wondered, like, why is he doing this? Like, he took the role of, like, you know, a hero to some, a villain to some. It's rather, it's not a very glamorous role. It's a little bit of a, of a dingy role, I think. And my opinion from the very beginning is he's doing it for his kids. His, ki his kids are going to be totally legitimized by this, kind of like Godfather 2 style. Like, you know, you just want to get out of... Because his money, everything from his background... And I know people get super mad. I hate that. I know. going to make people mad. But his so much of his background is basically knowing how to work the government for money. Like his dad did projects. His sister's a federal judge. He himself cut corners to get into the casino business, which is a, you know, government created oligopoly that will have, should have outsized profits unless you're him yeah. and you go bankrupt. But yeah, so I, so they, they will do things for their kids. And I mean, that's natural. There's a, there, yeah, because Ivanka is their World Economic Forum and all these things. And, and so the, that's a danger, right? So like if somebody has a family, then you can say, hey, play ball or we're going to indict your child. So then they play ball and you can blackmail them. You can manipulate them. You can bribe them. You know, here's Jared Kushner. Here's a $2 billion deal with Saudi Arabia, you know, um, and it makes you vastly more controllable. Unlike, you know, some, you know, medieval priest, you know, who, who was a little more incorruptible, but, uh, regarding Trump, there's an interesting rabbit hole. If you want to jump down this sometime, but I've been, um, I've been down a lot. So let's hear it. If you're, if you yeah. surprise me, I'll be surprised. <laughs> okay. So, so there, I'm going to start here. And, and my friend, Rebecca, who's watching, will know all about this. Um, the John Birch society. So the John Birch society form forms in 1958, uh, Robert Welch founds it and he is an anti-communist. He's a, he's a big fan of J. Edgar Hoover. Uh, who was also anti-communist in, in 58. Most of our FBI were patriotic, you know, kind of constitution-loving, crew-cutted 
guys, six foot two with square jaws back then. And uh, very, very different FBI. And so anyway, so so they, like Robert Welch, essentially uh, wanted to create an org- a conservative organization uh, that had chapters all over the country and that would kind of be a private sector FBI. And, um, you know, he, he, he wanted to help fight the communists, smoke them out. Now, one of the one of the organizations that kind of splintered off from this was called uh, the, uh, the the Western Goals Foundation. And Western Goals Foundation uh, comes about when Larry McDonald becomes the he's a congressman. Larry McDonald is a Democrat, too, a uh, conservative Democrat. And he becomes uh, the head of the John Birch Society in the late 70s, early 80s. And um, he founds it with a British spy named John Reese and uh, uh, General uh uh, what was his name? Glaub, I think, uh, who, who was one of the founding members of the CIA. He was in the OSS back in World War II. And so these three men found Western Goals Foundation, and it becomes almost like a private sector CIA. And um, very, very interesting rabbit hole. But this is, I'm going to circle back to Trump in a second. So please uh, I've forgive me. I've never even heard of the Western Goals Foundation. Yeah, exactly. I hadn't. Amazing. Till, till I have very to ask recently. you about your research. Keep going. They, they shut down during Iran Contra. Uh, because Oliver North and other forces were kind of funneling money through them. Three-fourths of their funding came from West Germany, you know, which is most likely CIA money coming through. Now, this is where it gets uh, interesting. If you, th- There was a book uh, that just came out in March of last year uh, by Matthew Dalek called Birchers. And in that book, he talks about the ADL, the Anti-Defamation League, spying on, on the John Birch Society, <laughs> and also the American Legion was spying on them. And... Um, during some of this spying, you know, the, the, some of the uh, original 11 John Birch Society members, uh, Roger Milliken, uh, the, the you know magnate who got into chemicals and textiles and stuff, um, Fred Koch, the father of the Koch brothers, was in there. And there was also a Mr. Trump who was there. Uh, so Donald Trump's father was an early member of the John Birch Society. Fred? Was with, it Fred? Yeah, with a guy named Roy Kahn, who you might have heard of. Wow. Uh, oh, my circles. gosh. My mother yeah. used to love Roy Kahn because he yeah. defended McCarthy. Yeah, it was right hand man. Okay, now here and and by the way, the the headquarters of the John Birch Society gets moved uh, from Massachusetts to Appleton, Wisconsin, which is the hometown of McCarthy, uh, within a mile of his grave. And I think Con might have had something to do with that. But anyway, um, so so this is where we're we're heading. Okay, so so Roy Con was there with Fred Trump and a young Donald Trump, and Roy Con was very adept at blackmailing people. Now, oh yes, what, Donald knew Roy. Yeah. was close with him and there was a was storage a facility that that had a trial against Trump that had Roy Cohn stuff in it testimony in it and it burned to the ground in 2012 yeah int- yeah exactly yes. and that's so, that's why they're raiding Mar-a-Lago now they uh, knew the each guys is terrified of uh you know, blackmail stuff that Trump might be amassing from his time in the White House. Wow. But, but anyway, so uh, Western Goals Foundation, as I said, founded by three guys. Let's repeat them again. Larry McDonald, uh, John Reese, and uh, Major General Glaub, whatever his name was. And so they essentially were amassing blackmail material on people. At the time, I talked to one of the people who was uh, kind of part of this, and he was a journalist. He was a, a putative journalist, and he was told to be a confidential informant. He would sit in the audience of communists, you know, and, and stuff like that, subversive groups. And he was told to report back to the to the Los Angeles uh, police red squads. And I said, what's a red squad? And he said, he explained it to me. He said, okay, well, before 1978 or so, uh, every police department had a private sector intelligence agency. And they would spy on communists. They would spy on subversives. It started in 1919 by J. Were they Root. tapping phones? Yeah. My phone was tapped when I was a kid. I remember we could hear I'm it. Sure. <laughs> I have eight, eight older brothers and sisters who were just wild and... 
Yeah, I mean, and then, but my father was a staunch anti-communist, but very active in that. And I could tell you stories about that, but we could hear the taps on the phone. Yeah, well, they did did it to uh, Martin Luther King. They tap, uh, tapped his phone. They they recorded his uh, goings on. I mean, they must have Susan. done it like crazy if they were doing it to us. We were nobodies. Yeah, you know well, I mean? well we John were... Lennon said that, and they were like, are you paranoid? You're just stupid. They have better things to do than tapping yeah. the phones of like people like you. And then they found, you know, thousands of, of pages of, yes, they wow. did. <laughs> yes, they did follow him. Yes, they did, you know, do all these wow. things, surveil him. But anyway, so um, so these these police red squads would get, you know, like like Larry McDonald explained it by saying, hey, we want to keep communists out of the State Department. And so help us kind of smoke these people out. So, you know, spy on them, send the information back to the LAPD Red Squad. They were the biggest Red Squad in the country. And then they would shift that back to Western goals. Okay, now what happens was uh, Larry McDonald dies in a plane crash, 007, I think was the name of the, the number. That the plane. was fishy. Yeah, very fishy. And, and yes. he, this might be why he was killed. Yeah, they um, didn't rescue him. Somebody was like, hey, a plane just went down. They're like, no, it didn't. <laughs> I was like, uh, yeah, it did. Yeah, they well, he, never even check, checked out the report. He was threatening very powerful people by creating a private sector CIA. And uh, so anyway, so so he's amassing all of these files. In 1977 or 78, I think 78, the Church Commission bans police red squads. They say that this is violating people's constitutional rights. It's, you know, warrantless spying and all this kind of stuff. So they ban them. They think that the, the police departments will just burn these files. Instead, there was a feeding frenzy of intelligence agencies trying to get these files because if you have these files, it gives you tremendous power because it wasn't just, oh, you're sitting in an audience of a, of a communist giving a speech. It was stuff like them tapping phones, them knowing who your mistress was so that they could blackmail Danny you. Danny Hester, I think he was caught by yes. local cops. Yeah, well, yeah, he was, and he was also, yeah, he was passing But he was being monitored by the Turkish, FBI, but Turkish they didn't Turkish intelligence, yes, yeah. yes. And so, <clears throat> so anyway, so when Larry McDonald dies, uh, the new person to take over Western Goals Foundation and, and have all of this blackmail material was Roy Kahn. And Roy Kahn basically told Donald, hey, you didn't get that bid on the building? Show him this manila envelope, you'll get the bid. Oh, you didn't get the uh, permit to uh, build this roller rink here? Give him this manila envelope, they'll give you the permit. And so Donald Trump got very famous for, uh, you know, like Cory Booker was making fun of Donald Trump and Trump made this cryptic comment. He said, I know more about Cory Booker than Cory Booker knows about Cory Booker. Um, so he's very famous for, if you walk into a room with Donald Trump, he's already seen a dossier of you. He knows everything about you, your net worth, your connections. Uh, and he's been trained from the time he was very, very young by Roy Kahn. Uh, That's probably so yeah. why he doesn't drink because you got to keep, you know, really loose lips. But yeah, so he doesn't want to be filmed. <laughs> yeah, where would that information be? Like, how, I mean, Roy Cohn's long dead. Where mm -hmm. Donald Trump like has it? You think? Oh, that's what you're saying. Mar-a-Lago could be about. That seems a little. That yeah. Mar-a-Lago thing seems so fake. Oh, but you're saying it's it had a reason why yeah. do that. There was it, real, it no wasn't real reason about to national do it. security. It was that about figured, him but, amassing. Yeah. Like Donald Trump was was like, I won't take a salary. You know, there was a. I, I, I've, <laughs> I've told you know one of my friends about this. Like there was a, a TV show about where you live, right? The Shield. Uh, you know, about the uh, the Rampart scandal in the 80s with the LAPD and stuff. And one of the seasons, the, the MacGuffin for the show, for the series, was a box of blackmail material. And that box of blackmail material was worth more than its weight in gold because you right. get so much more money off of being able to blackmail judges, right. being able to blackmail the local aldermen, mayors, all this kind of stuff. And the, and I mean, the, you know, Donald Trump yeah. has gotten away with, I mean, I'm not going to say murder because I actually never heard that from 
for him, but he has gotten away with so well, I guess. I mean, if he, being president always involves being a murderer, I think. But <laughs> that yeah, I do. So, and I would be interested in what you have to say from an ethicist's point of view. But yes, it's been weird from the casino thing to like even his building. Uh, he took over, I think it was the Bergdorf Goodman building or something in New York or Bonwit Teller, something like that. And it was a historical preservation thing. And he they he was absolutely legally obliged to keep it intact, the facade. And he just like pulled that stuff down and smashed it into a million pieces, like all the concrete gargoyles and everything and completely got away with it. And I was like, this guy has gotten inside track. And I just figured it was mob or something, but... Well, yeah, yeah, that too. Yeah, the real. I, I was just talking to my son about Machiavelli, and we were kind of going over Machiavelli, and I was like, okay, so he has a bad reputation because there's kind of the ideal concept of politics that you'll find in Cicero or Aristotle or something. And Aristotle was the tutor of uh, Alexander the Great. So Alexander the Great got, you know, re a really great education. And Cesare Borgia, you know, had it for his teacher, Machiavelli. And so Cesare Borgia has a very bad reputation in Renaissance Italy for murder and rape and intrigue and poisoning and all this kind of stuff. And he was taught to do it by Machiavelli. Uh, he said, it is better to be feared than to be loved. And so, you know, all of our kind of political science is, has those two pivots. It's Cicero on the one hand of the ideal, ideal behavior, how you can make your society better and more ethical and, and stuff like that. And then you have this, this practical kind of, you know, governance model by Machiavelli, which includes kind of beheading people in front of their wives and children. Because if you do the scientific application of violence, you can head off a lot more violence if it's a lawless, crazy kind of, you know, dystopia. And so, you know, he makes his his kind of pitch for for that model. And I think a lot of people in the current kind of, you know, modern uh, political, you know, landscape have kind of shifted more toward Machiavelli, like you said about presidents, like where they kill people. Yeah. Um, what do you I, think I about that? That's, I believe that's absolutely true. And yeah. I think a lot more of our presidents have been killed, you know, uh, like uh, William oh. Henry Harrison a month in. in and he's, Warren Harding. He's, yeah. Likely poison. Warren, yes, they say it was his wife, but I don't believe that for a second. I think it's because he was getting us back on track. And then Calvin yeah. Coolidge, they both won to the credit of women getting the vote. Biggest landslides in presidential history, Harding and Coolidge. Big snaps to women's voting. I, I can't follow you there. But I'm um, saying, <laughs> I was just saying that Warren Harding, I know, I... I'm for the patriarchy, have, please forgive me. Yes, I understand. <laughs> and I'm... I am being facetious because I, you could attribute uh, so the bend towards socialism uh, as to women, but who gave women the vote? Men. So whatever. Yeah, but, but not for good reasons. I mean, like we yeah. basically devet the fiat, like fiat currency. So we have fiat voting, right? So it loses its value. Like, oh. you know. Oh. When, I, I think people, only people who own property, in, in my oh, opinion. I totally can, agree can with vote. you there. That's it. <laughs> Absolutely. Skin in the game. And at the yeah. very least, they cannot be a net recipient of federal or of public monies, which was not even a concept in the constitutional time. But if like you're not paying a penny in taxes and you're getting actually pay negative taxes in the form of a welfare check, absolutely not. No, no, no. I mean, that's just robbery. But forgive me, I have a son who has Down syndrome mm -hmm. and I love him to death. He's so smart, smartest kid. He is propagandized in school to hate Donald Trump. I don't care. Um, but he, I said to him, well, what if Donald Trump said that someone who has Down syndrome could drive because he wants to drive and he cannot drive, thank God. And he's like, oh, I would totally vote for him. 
So a girl in Spain, a woman, was recently elected to parliament who had Down syndrome. I'm like, that's... Even I have a problem with that. Like that just demonstrate. First of all, like as my other son said, it's like the first thing she's going to do is give Down's kids licenses, you know. But the point was that either, I mean that that just demonstrates the state of the vote. You know, either everyone who voted for her knows it doesn't matter at all. You know, and they're just like, it's, you know, it's an award. Like, you know, being a member of parliament is an award. Participation trophy. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So, yeah. So I would say like the vote is ridiculous. And, but a property as a criterion would be fantastic. Yeah. And that's what it originally was, by the way, just to circle back around to the ethics theme um, with John Stuart Mill and considerations on representative government. Uh, he was dealing with the democratization of the vote back in England in his time period in the 19th century because the French Revolution had happened. And the British were like, we've got to give the poor people some representation or else there might be a revolution. So they, you know, House of Commons and we start, you know, expanding the vote. And, uh, Mill, uh, you know, John Stuart Mill was very liberal, uh, you know, extremely liberal. Well, he wanted what, what women. What do you mean by that? <laughs> well, he, he like wrote classical uh, liberal glowingly, or glowingly socialist. about so- socialism. Uh, and, but, you know, but for the time he was like, oh, well, let's expand the vote to women. Let's, you know, do all this kind of stuff. But, um, but he said, like, looking at the democratization of the vote, he's, he realized that, okay, if, if you have an aristocracy running things, you know, people who have been trained in political science and trained in infrastructure and economics and all this kind of stuff, you'll have much better government. If, if you start giving it, you know, power to kind of an idiocracy, you're going to have much worse. So he said, he said, we have to see a a reform to counteract the the pernicious nature of democratization of the vote would be like uh, he he said, giving people who are educated in political science two votes was one of his things. He said, um, and not allow, he said, if you've been on welfare for five years, you cannot vote. And the illiterate cannot vote. At least, I mean, at least. So he mentioned what you said about. uh, Thank you. you. I didn't know that. But all of those things are corruptible. So if I were to, you know, if you had to choose and maybe I've heard people from far different ends of the spectrum agree with me on this, and I'm not even 100% sure I I believe it, but I think my gut tells me like a rock solid constitution, very basic foundational constitution with with a hereditary monarchy would be the best way because the aristocracy and the education and double the vote if you're poli sci major, where are you going to school? You're poli sci major, read college, you get two votes. Like, you know, that's not that's not good. But there's been a, a lot of fiat inflation across all. <laughs> yes. Yes. The fiat so, inflation of diplomas and voting and I money. Mean, that's why I was an anarcho capitalist for so long yeah. and then a philosophical agorist. And then I started thinking, well, you know, I, if we're going to have laws, we might as well have them informed by an objective morality. So then I'm starting to think, like, what about the confessional state? But it's probably too late for that anyway. However, when you're talking to Avore, you were talking about it circling around to where, um, and, you know, maybe you can talk about this, that y- we could get back to that. And I, I really... Oh, yeah. I'm having a hard time getting my mind around the fact that we aren't experiencing like a, you know, a, a total break in any kind of civilizational pattern with between biological, you know, 
genetic level manipulation with mm-hmm. DNA sub or total surveillance and that kind of thing. How could you possibly think? And but maybe you should recap a little bit or tell people in this on this show, you know, a summary of that cycle that you were talking about. Yeah, well, Aristotle talks about that. He says that revolutions almost never happen from the people. They usually happen when oligarchs fight each other. And then there's one oligarch left. And that oligarch becomes the tyrant. And then when he dies, he passes on power to his son. And now you have a monarchy. And so like in the Roman mm-hmm. Republic, um, it started, they, they were a monarchy. And they, the last, they had seven kings and the last king was Tarquin. And uh, Tarquin was killed uh, by a guy named Brutus. And uh, and then the, the aristocrats took over. And uh, it was a very similar process what in year? England, by the way. Um, what year? Ish. Are you talking about? Like like uh, two, 200, you know, BC. BC. Yeah, 300 BC, around that time period. But anyway, so... Um, so yeah, so the, the end of the Roman Republic was that around? I'm a little sketchy. I dropped out of high school. Yeah, well, the, <laughs> I did. <laughs> but uh, but anyway, so so but so so it, and like I was like I was about to say. Oh, and by the way, for your, I, I just found this. I was just doing the audiobook for Vilfredo Pareto, the economist, the Italian economist, and the, Pareto the Roman, optimal Pareto. Yeah, that oh, how fun Pareto is that? principle guy. Yeah, and so he wrote a book called the The Mind and Society, and I just finished volume one, recording volume one of that. Um, and that will be available soon at better stores near you. Yeah, send me uh, and, links to all this, and I'll put it in the show notes at monicasdeepdives.com. Yeah, there you go. Um, but yeah, so he, he he was talking about like how the calendar, the Roman calendar before Christianity was A-U-B, right? And it was ab urbe uh, was condita, ab urbe condita, which means from the founding of the city of Rome. So like Julius Caesar, A-U-B would have been, he would have been born like 625 A-U-B. Nice, yeah, because it was 800 years, right? Yeah. And, uh, but anyway, so, uh, so yeah, so, so what usually ha- and, and Pareto, by the way, it's funny that I mentioned him because he, he's very famous for the circulation of elites, like these, these concepts. So what typically happens is you have a king and then people get sick. He, he becomes a tyrant, like all, all forms of government degrade, right? Aristotle says there's three basic forms of government. Monarchy degrades into tyranny, aristocracy degrades into oligarchy and republic degrades into democracy or mob rule, yeah. socialism. He, he considered. <laughs> Yikes. Yeah. And, uh, and, <laughs> at and, the bottom of the barrel. <laughs> yeah, and so so when uh, when when the the king degrades into a tyrant, people will kill him, and then you'll have a bunch of aristocrats, and then eventually there's a you know, and they'll call it a republic, right? And it'll be ruled by mob families essentially, because back then republics were not women, slaves, foreigners did not get a vote. It was the rich guys. It was the patricians who ran. That's what a republic was in Greece and in Rome and in Carthage and everywhere else. Um, so you had these rich guys, rich mob families, the patricians, they ran the society. And then, you know, eventually they kill each other until there's one. Left. <laughs> and then you go from a republic to a tyranny, a tyranny to a monarchy. And it just, it just keeps doing the circle. And so we're, we're in that period right now where we've been under an oligarchical rule uh, for quite a while. And right now we may be in the process of them attacking each other. And then, you know, what what is the oligarchy? Do you mean like politicians versus corporatists or corporate, you know, internecine fighting among the corporation, the corporatocracy? When you say oligopoly, are you talking about Republicans and Democrats? Like what no, are you talking about? The level above them, the level above corporations, uh, you know, the level above banks. Um, you oh, know, so those- like Chucky three versus the Rockefellers? Yeah, well, yeah, like junior junior partners <laughs> in the in the oligarchy. Um, yeah, so so I mean, and this is this might make a circle back to Hervoye Morich when I was on him, and we were talking about feudalism, the age of feudalism, mm-hmm. and it started uh, just for your audience. I'll, I'll say you already yeah, yeah. Heard, heard this, 
But so so Justinian, Justinian, the the you know Roman yeah. emperor, he he basically inaugurates what we think of as feudalism, and it happened because the Roman Empire was taxing everybody to death. So if you were in an industry that was heavily taxed, you might jump to another industry. And he said, no, 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 no. If your father is a farmer, you will be a farmer. Mm. If your father was a doctor, you will be a doctor. And he he created these hereditary sectors, industries, and you were kind of locked into that for like a thousand years, fifteen hundred years. And so in the Middle Ages, there were, you know, the, the, eventually the Roman Empire collapses, the church takes over, and feudalism kind of, you know, becomes the way that society is run. And, um, but there were three powers, as, you know, as I talk about, there's a, a book uh, about the age of feudalism by Georges Renan, uh, a French historian, uh, 1914. Uh, you can find this on Project Gutenberg as a free copy. But anyway. Um, Spell that last name. R-E-N-A-N. And so he says, yeah, he, he describes like how there were three powers in the Middle Ages. There was the church, there was the king, and then there were the mercantile guilds. And these mercantile, they, they were in dynamic equilibrium until Columbus kind of discovers the Americas and all this gold starts flowing in from the Aztec Empire. And then suddenly these mercantile people get richer than the aristocracy and it creates like a, a, an imbalance in the system. And now they start getting the idea in their head of, hey, what if we don't have kings rolling and we don't have the church rolling? What if we have republics with corporations, <laughs> mercantile guilds? And, and you see the rise of the British East India Company from this time period, the Dutch yes. East India Company before it, you know. But, uh, That's what I want to know all about. That's the, yeah. that, because that, I asked the question, what is the true nature? We can talk about the true nature of the universe in the universe. By the way, what's your answer to that? God, no God, is he Catholic? God, yeah, and he's clearly he's clearly Catholic, uh, but <laughs> and he has a long white beard. Is God Catholic? As we say in our house, are bears Catholic? Yeah. Um, so okay, so now let's talk about the true nature of power on Earth mm-hmm. in this country, in the West. Like I loved what you said. Oh my gosh, when you said that in that battle of the cycle from going from the um, the church to the nation state. Yeah. Yeah. So for 1500 years, yeah, the the church rules. The Russia China thing was just blew my mind. So let make sure you end up there. Well, oh, I I don't know. Are you want me to just tell you? So, what it was was you said the battle that we're seeing now, which I really puzzle over the battle with Russia and China. I'm like, they're not good guys. They're not, we are clearly bad guys in this battle, but they are not good guys. Like, what is going on? We help them, we create them. What is going on? And you said that the only difference is that they want still for the nation state to rule. And we, our fearless leaders, are already fully corporatocracy. And we've gone on to the next level. We're trying to, they're they're resisting that. Maybe I'm wrong, but that yeah. but that was an interesting way of thinking of how, where, what, where the divergence is. Well, that's, I'm, I'm using basically, there was a woman I interviewed named Penny Kelly, and she said that, you know, for 1500 years, the church rules, and then for 500 years, the nation state rules. And then after the nation state, you're going to get corporate rule. And that's the new organizing principle how long? That's, that's happened in the West. She, sa- she says it doesn't last very long, um, you know, collapses because it doesn't have a spiritual center, right? Like, so she said, like during the, the church, if you suffered, you were suffering for God. It had some kind of spiritual, you know, thing. Um, a clearly Catholic. Uh, <laughs> let's, hope, let's hope it's he's not a Scientologist. 
<laughs> no, no, I'm not Seinfeld. Uh, although Zenu, I'm sure, is listening. God, uh, I think they're worried about God being a Scientologist. God yeah. is not a Scientologist. Yeah, no. Uh, but anyway, so uh, so where, where was I going with that? Oh, yeah. So uh, you how know, long does the corporatocracy work? Yeah. So the corporatocracy. So, so she she's she was explaining that there's a spiritual component in, in a church-run society, in a, in a nation-state type, type society, there's still patriotism. There's some spiritual component. Right. There's under, a family under, of nation of ethnicity in that. You were well, saying, yeah, like, I mean, that's you care about your community. You care yeah. about your fellow man and stuff. Uh, but in the corporate world, we're just consumers. We're just animals. We're just the lowest level of, you know, kind of sense-based, you know, kind of bottom-feeding, you know, sociopaths, nihilists. And so you can't really control the society for that long because there's no, re you know, people stop cooperating and it falls apart. And and Peter Turchin, who's a Russian historian, talks about this. He's very eloquent on this point that um, without ethics— uh, societies fall apart. And he, he, he makes, like he talks about, um, he calls empires cooperation zones. And he says that you only see cooperation zones happen when people have like an ethical structure. It could be a religion, doesn't have to be because the Roman Empire had Stoic philosophy, right? But it has to be some ethical structure that everybody agrees to and it, it breaches differences in race or language or, or culture or whatever. And people will agree to it and they can, they cooperate. They don't kill each other. Um, he said, when this breaks down, the, the cooperation zone will dissolve. So if you have a corporate structure whose whole thrust is to divide people so that they don't have a revolution, right? So everything is about division. Uh, in, in the nation state, everything is about unity. E pluribus unum. We're supposed to come together. In the corporate structure, it's all about, you know, putting you in a niche so that you do not ever, uh, you know, kind of coalesce, you know. Are you familiar with Christopher Dawson? He was a Catholic sociologist who, no. oh, you're welcome. You're going to want to read him. <laughs> um, and then, and if I, if I didn't have this screen here, I'd be pulling books like crazy. I actually have books we have to talk about here. Um, Oswald Spengler too. They, what they said, which I'm sure you've heard of Oswald Spengler. But yeah, I read him when I was in my 20s. Yeah, the, I discovered him and then I realized, I think we're not... Maybe a Nazi, I don't know. But like the book was good, is all well, I have to say. He's part Jewish. Oh, well, I mean, I don't I don't know. I just read the book. I didn't, I'm not judging him beyond the the contents of the book, which I found was interesting. And he was a gentleman scholar, which we don't have a lot of anymore, though I, I would consider you a gentleman scholar. So there's no academic affiliation that that skews your conclusions or directs your research, which is true for you, is it not? I'm a guy who has a head of himself. Yeah. <laughs> Don't take me seriously. Do your I, own research. You'll, you'll find out. If, if I stood up right now, you would see like a tutu. I am know? wearing pajama bottoms, so yeah. I'm not standing up either. But uh, <laughs> So he, he, both of them basically said, well, what Dawson said was a country, I mix them up sometimes on, in, on this point. What, my point is that a, a, system, a civilization can appear to be progressing and growing and thriving because of its material success. But if it has competing religions, it is in decline because you can't pursue different values and still grow as a civilization. And what Spengler said was everything is math math. So if you see a society that has eclectic architecture, you can be sure it's in decline. 
Interesting. Yeah, yeah I that was interesting. Yeah, he also said that the only thing that is that is more powerful than the money motive is blood and soil. Like at his time period, he was you know alive when nation states were coming together, and a big component of nation states coming together is race. Uh, like uh, Albert Camus says that in his, oh, in his notebooks yes. about uh, he says that when Bismarck was putting Germany together, that he couldn't unify all these <laughs> all these different people until he came up with a concept of race, shared race, and that kind of brought them together. Wh whether it was true or not, the political Zionists did the same thing, the shared you know this concept. So when you want to build, like people right now, uh, you know, kind of beat up on Israel, but it's at the beginning of the process of the building of a nation state, so they're very ethnocentric toward the end and collapse right. of a society you cease being ethnic. So that's why right now the corporations to destroy the nation state, they have to stigmatize race or ethnicity. Yeah, but creating, you know, a great way to do that is to create an enemy, which leads to unjust war. So you, you got to be responsible for that. And I will say this book, I never heard anybody ever have this book before. Somebody recommended it to me when I was on the radio, never heard about it again, but I have it. It's called Peace by the wonderful people who brought you Korea and Vietnam by Archibald Roberts, who was a lieutenant colonel, retired, I guess, Air Force colonel or army. I don't know what, where colonels are. Um, and in this book, which I think was from maybe the 50s, he talks about the, the fact that like the UN is there to like take over everything and that what the, the weapon they will use is race. They will get in there and make sure that every society is divided based on these cries of racism. Yeah. And that was going to be their weapon, which makes complete sense to me in what you were saying, because it's in the UN's interest to dissolve the nation state or the World Economic Forum or whatever the world mm -hmm. corporation is. It, I think it goes to what you're saying, which is it was it, it, that the reason everybody, you're a witch, that was what you're saying, like you're a witch, you're a racist is to dissolve the nation state. And that's an interesting take on I mean, it's definitely looks true to me, makes sense to me. Yeah, well, like think of it, okay, let's go back to that taxonomy of 1500 years, the church rules. At that time period, people didn't think in terms of race because everybody was pretty much the same race. That wasn't a, a differentiating factor. Like if you ask Queen, Queen Isabel in Spain, what are you? She'd say, oh, I'm a Christian. Right. So she thought in terms of Christian, Muslim, you know, she thought in terms of religious affiliation uh, and she wanted to, to unify with Prester John and, and Ethiopia or, or, you know, Christians in different countries that, you know, so, so race was not a factor with her. It was she didn't think in those terms. Right. And then when the nation state, it goes from from a religious identifier as, as your identity to race as your identity. And now with corporations, they're taking both of those out. You know, so what are you like? How how do you connect with your fellow man? And the answer is you can't, which is why cor corporate rule is going to going to collapse. You know, there's nothing unifying us. I mean, it's what fashion. did you say? Fashion. Fashion. Yeah, I'm not <laughs> kidding. Fashion. Like I'm not fashionable, and but it's fashion that connects the. I see the kids like they dress the way they want you to think about them. Interesting. That's a good. Yeah. It's a consumeristic way. But I would also say that I've mm -hmm. long observed in the various Catholic churches I've gone to over the years, especially since I moved to California, that the there's a huge spectrum of ethnicities and immigration immigrants and stuff in these churches. And mm -hmm. there isn't a speck 
of racism because I think it's because we're all absolutely on the same page when it comes to values. We are really all there doing the exact same thing, yeah. answering to the same God. And we know he's watching and you're there, like they people will help each other. And I mean, just no racism at all in my observation. And it seems to me that that it maybe it's as, as, as a historical, you know, maybe it's a throwback to that time. Yeah, well, you know, somebody wrote a question. Did the church yeah. rulers, political rulers, and now corporate rulers have the same people or same social class in them? Um, don't get the question, yeah, semi-collegiate. Sure. <laughs> semi-collegiate, please rephrase the question. Yeah, or, or yeah, just put, put a little elaboration in there. Um, but uh, yeah, but th that goes, what you were just describing goes back to what I was saying, or Peter Turchin was saying, that you need a common ethical structure and people who are, on the surface, different, they can find a commonality where they won't fight and kill each other. Like the Roman Empire is very ethno ethnologically heterogeneous. And Marcus Aurelius even talked about that. He was worried about uh, fractures in the empire, like, you know, in the time period before Christianity. He said, we have to create a state religion, something to unify all these disparate peoples. And he came up with something called Soul Invictus, <laughs> which is the invincible sun. We will worship the invincible sun. So he created this fake top-down religion. his book, Meditations, And then later on comes Mithraism and then Christianity. Definitely presages Christian, um, mm. many Christian principles, in my opinion. I couldn't believe that he wrote that before Christ. Um, oh, yeah. The Yoga Sutras, too. What? Seneca, too. If you read Seneca, the he's, he was a Roman... And he, uh, in, in his, his, his writings, he has, um, if you want to be an ethical person or, or try to be a better person, imagine a great man like, you know, like Cicero is, is there watching you. And Christians took that and changed it to Jesus. <laughs> so they would take yeah, like so Roman precepts and kind of repurpose them. For yeah, that's really interesting and to and me like how you were talking about paganism that, you know, just being hollowed out. And Christianity overlaid, which we can see the remnants of that in the Christmas tree and, you know, that kind of thing. And then now that the Christian religion or whatever, you know, I don't know if you meant it's just strictly Christianity, but is being hollowed out and still used as kind of a future framework. Although Courtney Turner and I, another podcaster you may know, have talked about this book, which I don't know if you have this book, but I know you were talking something about the Milner Fabians. This is the Milner Fabian conspiracy. It's saying, all right, let's do it. And anyway, that one go, says that actually that Islam <laughs> is a better template to hollow out for the, you know, secular humanist world religion or whatever it's called. Here's semi-collegiate. And then you'd say whatever you want. I'm sorry. I've been really trying not to interrupt people these days. But it's so fun to go back and forth because I want to kind of pick your brain. But I'm going to stop. Is there? Oh, right, I see what is there saying. a social class something or family like network that nobility. is a power behind yeah. the throne? Something like the black nobility of Venice, money but no land. That's an interesting question. That's an educated person. Um, you know, congratulations, semi collegiate. Uh, yeah. So, so that just for your audience, um, the black nobility is essentially, they're like the aristocracy that kind of predates the nation state and they derive their noble titles from the Pope. 
not from a king, you know, because the kings were subordinate to the pope. So the, the the that older nobility in Italy, they see themselves as above the the kind of later kind of no, lower nobility. And uh, so uh, allegedly, there have been a bunch of people writing books about that. How there's like a war between you know this older and and somebody my wife brought it to my attention. There was some Italian family that was the richest family in Italy in 1300, and they're wow. still the richest family wow. you know, in 2024. They are still that. that there's family. your answer. Yeah, so so they they still are very uh, well connected. Yeah, and and so according, I was reading a, a, an article on this like maybe a year ago, and and they were talking about how the the black nobility is opposed to a lot of the stuff that the the new kind of corporate nobility, the corporate class is trying to do. Like, so for instance, the corporate class is trying to erase nations, erase erase ethnicities, make us mm, one bland, wall. homogenized kind of Brazil, you know, global Brazil, uh, as opposed to the black nobility who wants to keep separate nations and separate religions and stuff like that. And, and there's always kind of internecine fighting between the two groups. But um, yeah, I mean, that, that goes to show what we were talking about earlier about uh, feudalism and how feudalism... Okay, so let me set this stage for for your uh, viewers as well um just to circle back to uh to feudalism okay so so uh, christopher columbus brings back all this money the merchants get richer than the aristocrats suddenly you have this new mercantile elite uh christendom is broken in two uh you know so at the same time i mean with, within like a couple decades of christopher columbus you get martin luther the gutenberg printing press all of a sudden europe breaks in two and Northern Europe does not want to be tithed anymore to the church. They want to keep their own money, right? And so essentially, you know, you have this disruption. And, and if, if you're not tithing to the Vatican, well, well then who are you tithing to? And they, their answer was, hey, you can tithe to the merchants. And you can invest in the, these, you know, merchant, merchant ships going to Asia, and we'll give you a return. And so suddenly you're tithing not to a church, but you're tithing to the Dutch East India Company, or later the British East India Company when they moved to England. Um, they basically take over. Uh, that that happens basically with Oliver Cromwell. Oliver Cromwell is trained in the Netherlands. Uh, Charles I steals money from a bank. Uh, the Dutch bankers don't like that. They train Oliver Cromwell in the Netherlands, send him back into England. He murders the, the king, and they create a Republic of England. You'll notice this theme. Republics are usually corporate-created. You know, they, they wanted to get rid of, they openly say this, they wanted to get rid of thrones and altars. France. So they want to get rid of monarchs, and they want to get rid of the church. Well, if you get rid of the monarchs and the church... Who rules and it's corporations and so that's what we've been living with and so what this is to, to go to the fabians this is an interesting rabbit hole um that i was reading the the book uh, the history of the fabian society by edward peace and it's like from the 30s and so the fabians start in like the 1860s and 70s and they start uh influenced by john stuart mill who was writing about socialism and henry george oh, george uh, you might is that where know the about henry george in the 1870s who's a journalist and the Georgist, I think Georgist was basically I don't, I don't, I don't anarcho-capitalism, but without real property rights. You could not own yeah. property. Yeah, exactly. And so Henry George said said all property should be owned by the government, not by no, private I, I individuals. And he, yeah. The reason why he said that, it sounds evil at first, but just to give him, yeah, to give him his due for your audience, at, at that time period, um, when the Industrial Revolution happens, uh, Suddenly, you know, uh, the, the aristocrats, they, they're trying to figure out how do we get in on this, right? How do we get rich? We're not creative. We don't know how to make anything. We do have one thing. We have land, 
right? So what we're going to do is we're going to jack up rents. We're going to jack up you know, outside the market forces. And so we'll, we'll, you know, get more money that way. And what happened was that uh, inflation was such that, you know, in the, in the late 1700s, that it, it required a week's wages for a worker to buy a single loaf mm -hmm. of bread. And at that time period, Karl Marx was looking over to America and he was like, they don't have an aristocracy. They don't have a, a dearth of land. They have all this land, no aristocracy. So land is really, really cheap. And so Henry George was talking about that's why there was more money to, he called it for the wage fund. So they, they American workers were making two to three times what their English counterparts. Thomas Malthus writes about this as well. Uh, they, and so does Carol Quigley in The Tragedy and Hope. Uh, Americans, because there was no aristocracy gouging by using land. So Henry George said, you should be able to make money on something you created whether it's a song, whether it's intellectual property, whether it's a product, right. you did not create land. Therefore, you should not be able to profit off of land. And he was looking at all these abuses in Europe and and he was, and and so that was his, so basically the Fabian socialists started, they, they glommed onto that and they were, they were like, hey, let's create something called guild socialism. It was I just built wanted on, to uh, on observe Henry George's that conception. I, okay. I've always Jump felt in. that European style socialism was artificial in the United States for that reason, that they had an ill-gotten gains, like their property as a result of feudalism enforced by laws against mixing your toil with the soil and owning that land kind of like in, um, contrast to something like a rule against perpetuities or whatever, they could lock up God, God given land for you know, intergenerationally. And we didn't have that constraint. So, for, so I felt like socialism in Europe was a way to address that, to say, look, we don't even need to take, you know, outright communism, you take the land with socialism. You don't need to take the land, but you guys have to pay a very high tax on that land because we can't figure out who really gets that title. And all these peasants will never have a chance. I mean, you guys have owned it for 500 years. Still to this day, people own like cities, the squares in the city of London or London, not city of London for hundreds of years. And there's just no way to tap into that. It's too late, but here we don't have that. So we don't have that. Like what's the answer to title being, you know, a legacy of ill-gotten gains of land, of limited land. We don't have that. So we shouldn't have all, because that's why I feel like all European socialism is imported. Yeah, that's that's an interesting concept. I mean, like I had a German friend come to America and he was like looking at all, like my uncle had yeah. a uh, yeah. two or three acres. His front yard is two or three acres. He's yeah. like, this Where is unheard of it? in Germany. You open the door and there's just a sidewalk. Yeah. Yeah. You have all this land. And I mean, we were giving land away like the Sooners, right? Hey, go to Oklahoma. We'll give you <laughs> free land. You know, that was unheard of in, in Europe where land was wealth. But then we we edged into where, you know, industrial production was, you know, we the, the, the time period changed from mercantilism to capitalism, although there's well, still that fight uh, going on. Who's going to rule? The capitalists the or the mercantilists? The articles of confederation right now, versus the constitution we think of globalists could be or seen as the, ag the ags versus the mercs. <laughs> Yeah, I like that. That's a, that's a very, yeah, very good. Uh, federal, okay, okay. so federalism, that concept of federalism, that was imposed from England, right? So Alexander Hamilton, and you had all these agents from the Bank of England. Like, uh, like Hamilton immediately wanted to impose, not only write a new constitution where they create a new monarch, 
you know, figure, which they called the president that didn't appear in the Articles of Confederation, but he also wanted a central bank. Uh, and so he creates the first bank of the United States, 80% of whose stock was owned by the Bank of England. So basically it allowed them to get an economic foothold. That new constitution allowed them to get an economic foothold over what had been the American Republic. So the American Republic ended with the Articles of Confederation. Uh, by the way, for your audience, uh, the, the earliest presidents, uh, uh, Washington, Andrew, uh, uh, John Adams, Jefferson, all of wow. them referred to the early United States as the Confederacy uh, because it was under the Articles oh, of Confederation. They called it the Confederacy. It made sense. So in the Civil War, when the South called itself the Confederacy, it was a reference to the Articles of Confederation. They were trying to keep the old republic. And then there was this new federal system. And what this book ad addresses, by the way, it's, it's called Dream Worlds of Race uh, by Duncan Bell. He's an English historian. And he talks about global federalism, right? And so the Fabians were promoting this global federalism concept where they essentially wanted to, to reintegrate the United States into the British Empire. And so they, they were doing that. And, and what they wanted to do, what's interesting about full circle, I know we're running out of time probably, but they... they Okay. Yeah. I'm, I'm fine. Uh, but so, so they, yeah, they, uh, they essentially, th there were four people in this book that essentially wanted to reintegrate the United States, like Alexander Hamilton was trying to do, reintegrate the United States into the British fold uh, through economic uh, means, through treaties like NATO. Um, and it was uh, Cecil Rhodes was, was one of the, the main proponents of this. Uh, W.T. Stead was another guy. H.G. Uh, Wells was another guy. And Andrew Carnegie who was a, a, he's the Monopoly guy, right? And so Andrew Carnegie, who was born in Scotland, uh, his, his, his father was a victim of the Industrial Revolution. He was a Luddite, a literal Luddite, wanted to break the machines because he was a <laughs> weaver. They were starving. So he knew, he knew want and starvation. And so it kind of radicalized him. When he comes to the United States, he was very sympathetic to socialism. Even though he was like the richest guy on earth, Yet he was, he was, and he, and he spent 30 years of his life trying to reintegrate the United States into Britain, right? 30 years creating what, what Duncan Bell calls Anglo world, where you're going to have a joint United States and England kind of take over. And the Fabian socialists were some of the architects. H.G. Wells was one of the four main figures, kind of, kind of intellectual tacticians on that. And, um, so yeah, so the Fabian Socialists back in the 1870s, they said that they wanted to veer us away from capitalism back to guild socialism. Now, remember what I said, we started in feudalism with the guilds, the mercantile guilds turn into modern corporations. So they want to take us into neo-feudalism or what they call the guild socialism, where, the where you will own nothing and be happy. <laughs> sound familiar? <laughs> it right? does so, sound familiar. So there's two two strains of Fabian socialism that that lead to that WEF phrase, you will be happy and know nothing. They said that number one, the you will own nothing part, that's from Henry George. You will have no property. The government will take care of the property. Number two, the second uh, kind of leg of that, the second pillar was John Stuart Mill who said that society should be, he wrote a glowing essay on socialism. And he said that, you know, everything should be done for the greatest happiness of the greatest number. So they would always talk about happy and you having no property. So you look at, at the modern world, it's, it's a direct genealogy from the Fabian socialists to, and, and they also, in, in chapter four of the book of History of the Fabian Society, they talk about how they will use um, trade unions to take over and subvert capitalism and take down you know, kind of, you know, capitalism, uh, corporations for, and stuff. And they what? said they're going to look. And, and then this, was the, this, this was the, the shocking part. Um, 
because we're seeing this now. Okay, Hitler in Mein Kampf. Uh, Hitler in Mein Kampf says the same thing. He used the trade unions to basically take over Germany. And so when the the, the Fabian socialists, like Annie, Annie Besant and all these people, they, they were out in the streets and they were, you know, into political parties and trade unions and everything. But I'm like, how could you do that now? There's no unions. But I was wrong. Even though they've destroyed public sector unions, there are still police unions, teachers unions, firefighters You're unions. private sector. They destroyed private sector unions. And they're resurging in the news anyway. I, I was reading The People Factor from the 70s and, and all these, these books that were, you know, kind of harbingers toward the death of, of unions, you know, and I thought that was gone, but no. Okay, so, so what they were talking about in chapter four of the Fabian Society was what if we can take the surplus funds of people in unions, let's call them pension funds, and what if we could have somebody who, who, who basically, you know, was a steward of these funds, let's call it BlackRock. <laughs> and, through, and we could buy into corporations, take them over, yeah. and collapse them. They were talking about this 100 years ago. Hold on. So, <laughs> exactly what's happening now. They were talking about it. And what will we'll follow it will be guild socialism, a rule of the guilds like in the Middle Ages when the mercantile guilds roll up. You know, collapse the, we're going the, full circle. So collapse the corporations by giving the labor too much power? No, just taking their money, you know, using using the money, the surplus wages of the workers in unions, right? And you create mm -hmm. a slush fund and then you use that slush, you use other people's money to basically take down, you know, the society. And so um, there was a guy named uh, one of the but, central But that's at odds to the corporatism, which is also our enemy. Right, well, there's, there's two different... are, we, are we not, are we not understanding? Because like corporatism, I consider to be the enemy. And now you're saying... Fabianism is after corporatism and will replace it with uh, guild socialism, which okay. I also don't like. Okay, so so there's two competing factions. There's mercantilism, which is the older system, right? You don't make anything. You just sail your ship to another country, you bring back products, silk or coffee, you sell it, arbitrage, make money off of it that way. And then capitalism happens. And in capitalism, you don't have colonies and slaves in other countries. You just use industrial production to do something, right? So so world, the, the history of the 20th century was this fight between mercantilism, let's call it the British Empire, and then capitalism, let's call it Germany, right? So say Germany, uh, you know, in, in innovates around England, right? So England is selling rubber. And nice. so they have, they've got to have colonies all in Southeast Asia. Yeah. If you want rubber, it takes nine months to get to you. Uh, it's degraded, it's inferior, salt air hits it. Germany creates synthetic rubber for pennies on the dollar and it's of higher quality. There's no slaves involved, no colonies necessary. Mm -hmm. So very quickly, England, this old part of this older model, this mercantile <laughs> model. Them. Yeah, we have to take them down. H.G. Wells, just getting back to him, mentions that in 1899. You've take down Germany. It took hidden a long history. time. This is the hidden history. It's called Hidden History, The Secret Origins of the First World War by Jerry Doherty and Jim McGregor. McGregor. Uh, mm. They also wrote Prolonging the Agony, how they kept World War I going. It took oh, yeah. decades, decades for whatever the, the beginnings of the Milnerites, whatever, to yeah. create pretext after pretext under which they wanted to go to war with Germany. And then even after they got it started, they really couldn't keep it going. And they had to keep pushing and pushing because they just wanted to destroy them. And it didn't even really work. They had to bring Hitler in and then do it again. And, you know, I guess Well, there, there was um, Carnegie. I mentioned Carnegie is one of the four guys who wanted to reintegrate the United States into England, into the mercantilist Rhodes, system. that's a Rhodes and thing, right? 
Yeah, so yeah, yeah, but it was the it was the Carnegie Institute for International Peace who oh. wrote Woodrow, Woodrow Wilson and said, yes. keep, keep the war going, keep World War One going, because we could get these these you know kind of structures, international like the League of Nations, which the Fabian Socialists yes. were the tacticians on. They also created the London School of Economics. Yes, they also were running the Rhodes Foundation. Uh, they yes. also wrote the, the the legislation for the creation of the Hague, the International Court. Oh, I mean, they're like everywhere. ESG, that was the Fabian Socialists. Ugh. Like the UN, that was the, you know, I mean, yes. like they're everywhere. And and so just to get back to, to explaining yeah. the, okay, no, good. No, good. Just, yeah. I want to understand the uh, I was just going to say, okay, so there. there's mercantilism. get my mind around it. There's mercantilism, which the Fabian Socialists want, right? Because that's the, the guilds, you know, guild socialism, that's the mercantilism, right? Uh, and then there's capitalism. They're, they're, they're enemies, right? So the guild, the guild socialist mercantilists, the Fabians, how do we get rid of the capitalists? We don't want capital because in capitalism, anybody can get rich. Henry Ford, a working class, a Thomas Edison, a working class guy can get rich under capitalism. Yeah. We don't want that. <laughs> we want a you know rule by an elite, you know, a mercantile elite, mercantilist elite. You know, we want globalism. We want little. Chinese kids and and you know making sneakers at the age of six yeah, in a African factory. Coders. Now we, we have want African this system. Coders. Yeah, yeah, not this system. And so so how do you take? But this system came into the ascendancy, and it kind of created enough power that they broke away from the mercantilists. And now the mercantilists have to take down the capitalists. But, but it's such it. a such a productive system. It's actually too yeah. productive. It's actually the production is what the cat what the kind of capitalist overlord. I hate to even smirch the name of capitalism because I, I like it, for, but it's been bastardized. It's financial capitalism, whatever. But it's the production it's that, that they're addicted to. And it's so productive that we could not possibly consume enough. I think that's half the reason they have to blow countries up. Well, that's what, uh, yeah, disaster <laughs> capitalism. Yeah, yeah, but that's, you mentioned fashion before, Edward Bernays and propaganda. He talks yeah. about production, industrial production causing problems. And he said, because you have to warehouse all these sneakers. So how do you get people to buy six pairs of sneakers when they only need one, mm -hmm. right? And, and he said, we're, we're going to create something called fashion. And we're going to create generational, like he, he yeah. explicitly, like they didn't have a concept. They didn't have the word teenager. If you go a hundred years ago, there was no concept of teenager. And so he said, we purposely did this so that we could have young people go, I, I don't want the shoes of mm -hmm. my old father, you know, he's, he's a boomer, you know, okay, boomer, you know, like that kind yeah. of stuff. So that he, so that they would throw away perfectly good things to buy new and to keep fashion. So because he said, if, if we had these sneakers building up or these dresses building up or whatever, you'd have to warehouse them that costs money to warehouse. So we need to teach people to consume more. So the system, part of the function of capitalism is, is consumption, mass consumption. See, now that's and, when it becomes yeah. disgusting. Yeah. And that's no, where I the mean, mercantilists yeah, basically come in and say we have to we have to collapse capitalism because it's too that there's too much consumption it's hurting the planet. Yeah, that's mothers one of their talking are. Points. I don't care about the planet. I mean, it's not that I don't care about the planet. I don't trust those people to husband the planet for me. That is for sure. Yeah. But I mean, moms work to buy kids sneakers, like extra sneakers. You know what I mean? Instead of saying, all right, everybody, you know, you have one pair of sneakers until they wear out, which could be never if they did it right, I suppose. But instead of taking that surplus energy and spending time with the kids, like that's why I hate subsidizing like highways, subsidize, you know, subsidizing oil with foreign wars and stuff. It's like, you know what? Make consumption expensive. Like make the natural trade-off really reflect the cost, but they don't they tax and then you get the infrastructure and then it's there and then the production and consumption is cheaper because you don't have to actually pay what it costs to build a highway every time you use it 
Mm. Anyway, that's a little bit yeah. of a tangent, but well, you, I, you, I believe that's a problem. A, you a you mentioned problem. Uh, what's his name uh, or a precept from John Locke and two treatises of civil government. He talks about in chapter five about when you mix your your labor with the soil, it mm-hmm. becomes property, right? So, mm-hmm. so there's that component. It becomes an extension of you. An extension of your will is now once you've cultivated land. Like if you just find random land, it's you didn't do anything to it. You didn't make it yeah. yours. But that's actually a Roman precept. Vilfredo Pareto talks about that, you know, like when you when you add your labor to something, it becomes your property. And yes. uh, so so he talks about in, in chapter five, John Locke, he talks about like, for instance, uh, the invention of money, of gold coins. Gold coins basically can last for billions and trillions of years, right? They're not gonna, they're not gonna disappear. And he said that when we had barter, you wouldn't tend to overfish because wealth, true wealth is not money. Like Adam Smith says, you know, mm. money is a unit of exchange to, to oh, acquire wealth. Excellent. But yeah, but he says, um, so so real wealth is water or wheat or or you know land, whatever. Yeah. And, but these things rot. They're subject yeah, to the Yeah, but you wouldn't overfish. That's genius. Yeah, I love that. Because it would rot. So you would only get what you actually needed. But when you got gold coins for the first time oh, and wow. you could amass wealth through gold coins, it, now you're, 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 you're prompted to so overfish. So a store of value is a moral hazard. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Wow. And that's, uh, that's so, I mean, I would like to get I think Ezra Pound said that. You can't can't quote him because he was a fascist. Of course you can quote Ezra Pound. I love Ezra Pound's <laughs> He's such work. a good writer. He's a great, great poet. poet. Yes. Eustace Mullins. Yeah, he does. Ridiculous. <laughs> I mean, it really sucks that he, like, and I looked into it. I was like, he probably got railroaded. It's like, mm, nope. I think he, like, literally went to Italy to be a fascist. Yeah. But his poems are, his even his prose, even the stuff he wrote from prison, whatever, this insane asylum was just beautifully written. Yeah, he was a genius. He was yeah. he was not a, you know, and and you have to remember too just just for your viewers if we want to get judgmental about any of these people because they they're always kind of selective. Like they'll show you, you know, oh, well Ezra Pound was an anti-semite. Okay, well so was everybody. Else. Yeah, everybody. <laughs> so was Roosevelt. So was like yeah. Eleanor Roosevelt. Read some of her quotes. Uh, you know, on these things. So was Woodrow Wilson, you know, or like going back to Roosevelt, he wouldn't shake Jesse Owens hand. Hitler did, <laughs> but, but FDR. Wow. Would, we, you know? Wow. But, that but, yeah, is so, so we have these shocking. heroes and they selectively, they, you yes. know, you yeah, can't read, do that. Yeah. You can't do that from, from MLK to Thomas Jefferson. If you're going to, if you're going to, you know, you, you throw the baby out with the bathwater. They're right wing extremists. And it's as, like MLK. It's like yes. all, all of them had views like, okay, well, I, 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 I suspect Abraham behaviors. Lincoln wasn't for gay marriage. Right. So therefore, right. he's a right wing extremist. Right. Well, no one was forgetting. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, what what are you talking about? But Ezra Pound wanted to disconnect the mm-hmm. medium of exchange from the store of value. And yeah. that's something that I've uh, been mulling over. Like, I can't, but that, that you're saying that that uh, store of value is a moral hazard is just genius. And a book I read, which you may have heard of, I would be surprised if you didn't, Against the Grain by James Scott, who's a. Uh, Yale professor. He's not, you know, like... I read Against the Grain by uh, Carl Jury Huisman, who was oh. a 19th century novelist, but no, I had not, not oh, read the oh, well, this is not, yeah. No, this is not a metaphor. This is a, literally, okay. he's against grain because, not because it's bad for you, but, or one of the things he brings up in the book, he brings up many really interesting things in the book, is that we, when we were semi-permaculturalist. So he said like there were 4,000 years before the agricultural revolution when we knew how to domesticate vegetables Mm -hmm. or, you know, plants. And we didn't do it like, we didn't grow crops like that. We just cultivated 
um, little gardens of Eden or whatever, you know, you would take the weeds away from strawberries that were growing, but you didn't go out of your way to plant rows and rows of strawberries for thousands of years, he said. And, and one of the benefits of like having, and during that time, um, in some places, the staple would be tubers because you could actually leave tubers in the ground until they were needed. They would grow and grow or whatever. Whereas grain had to be harvested, had to be harvested all at once. So when tax authority emerged, they they couldn't like come and force you to dig up your tubers. But when the grain was harvested, that's when they came and took half of it. So um, I find it interesting that, you know, you don't even think about these things of how do you store things? How do you conserve and and it's it, it's natural and it's so much easier. And, you know, I really feel like that's where you want to kind of spend time with your family and whatnot. And it has some spiritual value. I think of Spain and Italy as the you know Catholic places, but not with the Protestant work ethic. I'm, I'm just thinking about that recently because I'm getting tired and I like to sit around and drink wine. I'm like, you know what? That's not so bad, I think. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, I mean, like, uh, you know, Talking about there, there was a guy named uh, Frederick Soddy. Frederick Soddy uh, was a scientist, and he won the Nobel Prize in 1917 for discovering like, discovering uh, nuclear isotopes with Rutherford. And uh, he retired after he won the Nobel Prize, and he d- devoted himself to economics. And he wrote a book called "Wealth, Virtual Wealth, and Debt" back in like 1920 something. And he um, he basically conceptualized using money. Uh, well, yeah, but Saudi, Saudi was, uh, he wrote this book called wealth, virtual wealth and debt. And he was talking about what a pseudoscience economics was. And he said, because wealth is perishable is subject to the laws of entropy, but debt is not. And he was like, you have to have one or two, like pick, you can't have this mis- mix match system where debt can accrue forever you know, past like the the moons of Saturn yeah. and wealth, you're, you buy a house. Oh, my house is my wealth. Well, that rots. That goes away. You know, the silo of wheat rots. So, so initially in the Middle East, they would have jubilees where, where the, de- the, 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 the debt would, would time out as well, right? Otherwise, the system would collapse. And so the, the Roman Empire read this really great article about um, how the Roman Empire, uh, basically Semitic peoples came in to the empire and they brought the concept of selling debt. And it was new to the Romans. They were like selling debt. And so they, they took one half of their system but they didn't take the debt jubilee that would have made it actually workable. And so now you have like this debt-based system that's kind of like killing, you know, the But who would the, the creditors be? How could they tolerate that? Well, there was there was a, a woman who wrote a book called uh, The End of Scarcity. Uh, Ragusan, Karen Ragusan, I yeah. think her name was. And she talks, she's explaining uh, how we don't have money, we have anti-money. And she was like saying, okay, every one of the yeah. dollars that you're holding up is, is you know, a unit of debt. It's not an asset. It used to be, mo- real money is an asset. Okay, well, this dollar stands for gold. Okay, that's an asset, that's money, you know? But if you're, if if, if your dollars come into, into, into existence when someone takes a loan or when the treasury prints up bonds, you know, then it's actually a unit of debt. It's anti-money, right? And she yeah. said that the system collapsed in 2008 because the system basically she said if if it runs out of people to take new debt then there's a deflationary crisis right and and so she's explaining to the guys he's like oh so you mean if if we paid off all our debt there'd be no money in circulation she's like yeah exactly <laughs> so she was like so so we need it's an inversion continuous streams of debt which is why we have things like mass migration because if if your populace is is yeah. tapped out and broke you suddenly need a billion new people the system requires it 
Yeah, I think that when people say oh, they're coming here for the goodies, whatever, I'm like, they're coming in here. They are indenturing their children. I De- mean, and <laughs> we have n- nothing but taxation without representation in the form of future obligations, the national debt. It's just our children are not represented in the money that we are spending and taxing them for. And here are foreigners coming to take that on their shoulders. I don't know how this is going to be resolved in the existing paradigm, and I don't think it will be. So um, no. I, that's, that is where we're going to have a collapse, I think, or, or whatever. I mean, I'm sure that the big T, they are prepared for the next phase. But tell me what you think about that. Yeah, they're doing it on purpose, you know. Um, yeah. You know, it goes back to the cloud pivot strategy. Yes, acceleration. Just, yeah, yeah, exactly. And so they're bringing in, all, look, uh, Angela Merkel let the cat out of the bag. She publicly said, uh, zero hedge, it was two years ago, I think. And uh, she said, what is the nature of a republic? And she's like, it derives its power from the people. And she was like, but what if there is no German people? Then upon what authority does your republic stand? So they were talking about kind of blurring kind of identity, national identity, and then they take your political power away, right? Like if there is no people, and, and you, you hear these talking points yeah. all the time from libertarians, which is why I'm no longer a libertarian. I used to be. Because, oh, there's no people, no American people. Okay, well, what does republic mean? It comes from Latin, respublica, the people's thing. It literally means the people's thing. You have Abraham Lincoln, oh, it's a government of the people, by the people, for the people. If you don't have a people, there's no republic. So you can't, you can't say, oh, we're going to have a republic, but no people. You're not having 7 billion Liechtensteins. You're having one world government when you do away with the nation state at this point. I mean, that's just what's happening. That's why it's, that's not going to work because it was a setup. I'm not saying it couldn't work or it isn't an organically viable thing, but it's not organic. They're, they're ahead of us. <laughs> you know, they're ahead of this. Um, but so I, when I think about your you know, hopeful thought that this this, you know, there, there is, there, there is collapse baked into this progression. I worry, as I said at the beginning of our conversation, I worry about real fundamental changes like DNA drugs or, you know, transhumanism. I don't know if that's even realistic, but a lot of people think that it is, um, this, uh, like asset corporations, natural asset corporations, or like total surveillance, like all these things that make me think that, that these cycles are, 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 we're in a paradigm shift and the cycles can't continue. Yeah. We're in a transitional period, unfortunately. And, uh, it's going to be very, very dicey, uh, but we we win, but not in in a kind of <laughs> good way. Yeah, yeah, we we win because it does collapse, which is what they were correct. Right. Yeah, the right. people, like I said, historically, republics were not run by you know regular Joes. It was run by you know rich people, uh, you know, kind of a, a, a political class or monarchies. We're also not a party to that. Like I always thought as a kid, you know, when when they talk about the people, they're talking about us. No. When they talked about the people rolling things, they were talking about aristocrats. <laughs> you're not a party to that contract. You're you're a serf. You're you know you were never a party to that contract. But there were times in history when the people get more freedom. But it's usually after a mass death event, like in the uh, 1300s, the, the Black Death comes to Europe. Yeah. yeah. And when that Black Death comes, then you suddenly, get your wage increases. 
<laughs> because exactly. So there's fewer people. The aristocrats need people to work the land. So then they're willing to give you political rights. Okay, we won't rape your daughter anymore and draw de senor, right? Look that up. Draw de senor. They had the the right, the nobles had the right to deflower your daughter. Oh, um, I know. That uh, went away. Yeah, you got yeah, you got the vote. <laughs> Yeah, but it only happened because people became more valuable because there was a mass extinction event. Right. And so that's typically on the other side of that. Normal people get more political rights. And so if we're going through transhumanism and if we're going through all these, you know, um, there was a general and he talked about that. If if there was an EMP and the electricity got turned off, he said within 90 days, a third of the United States would be dead. dead. Within 90 days. So um, we're very, we're always on the on the cusp of because of supply interruption or yeah exactly like well, it, can kill yeah each supply other. chains go down <laughs> Lord and the then, flies or yeah so so supply chains go down and then predators basically in the cities they start turning on vulnerable populations one of those vulnerable populations are going to be like old people who would be dying anyway because they can't get their medicines because well, the supply chain goes that. down yeah so they start so you start seeing this pattern of of predation and and murder and, and rape and pillage. And uh, so, yeah, there's there's going to be mass extinction. And but on the other side of that, uh, and the, the elites know this too. I mean, they've because they 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 study history, they they study cycles. Um, and uh, by the way, I did a, a great interview with Joseph Farrell, and he was telling me that the government has like this Department of Cycles that Herbert Hoover uh, instituted, and it's still there. And they study cycles of everything, like like the mating habits of honeybees, or economic cycles, or astronomical wow. cycles, and they see patterns. Pattern you know. recognition, yeah, yeah, pattern recognition. That's and, predicting and, the future. Yeah, and so rich people, yeah, rich, very wealthy hedge fund owners that they get that data yeah. and gee i was just trying to do that on the fly like hey i've seen that before you know that's yeah. what we're doing right is that yeah, what we're check trying out to do? check out my interview with joseph farrell and he'll give you the exact name wow. of that that organization uh that does i have to go through <laughs> and listen to this entire conversation and write down all of the references unless you know what they are if you can remember but i sincerely doubt it i have a big question for you i have two questions one i want to make sure, sure. you got to and everything that you wanted to talk about. And if not, let's do a part two. Um, so think about that for a sec. And then I have this other thing, which is about freedom, about we started this conversation about like uh, voting only if you have property. And I think of plebs and plebiscites. And when I, I've told, I've told my listeners this many times, but it's relevant in different contexts right now, which is when I, I was on the radio for, for, through Obama, it was eight and a half years, whatever years it was like, or nine, 2011 to 2020. And during that time, mostly it was Obama, but it was also Trump. And when Obama was in office, everybody was like criticizing him for not obeying the constitution, but it was because it was a Republican channel. When Trump was in office, not a lot of people, you know, a lot of people didn't criticize him for disobeying the constitution. And it made me realize that, you know, the people, even people who I thought were really solidly ideologically sound were easily swayed by just the right combination of, you know, rhetoric and propaganda. And it really, it really, it really took a chunk out of my kind of faith in humanity, you know, like my belief in the people. And I wonder how you think about that. I mean, you know, democracy or constitutional monarchy or like rights of people versus their ability to self-govern? Is it an education problem? Is it a capacity problem, a legacy problem? Like, 
Can you, if you can even understand my question, can you give me some thoughts? Yeah, um, it is. Yeah, you're right. I mean, people get so caught up in teams, you know, and that's my team member, Team Red or Team Blue, and uh, they they overlook the bad behavior if they're on your team. And uh, yeah, so we saw a lot of that, you know, Operation Warp Speed. And team Orange. Go, it was Team yeah, Orange. Team Orange, yeah. yeah. And, and they'll go for things that they wouldn't go for if, if you know, somebody from right. the opposing political party. But if it's their guy, then suddenly, you know, oh, Nixon is opening up China. Oh, so since he's a conservative, then I guess it's okay to... I call it the contrary law of democracy. Like, it mm. will take a Republican to bring in gun control. It will take Correct. a Democrat to bring World War III. <laughs> Nikki Haley. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, Nikki Haley, who wants she's she's, so she's a I Republican. wish I didn't look like her. <laughs> like, oh, you don't look anything. You, oh, good, you, you, you. You're, you're much prettier. Um, yeah, Nikki Haley is is uh, predatory. But anyway, um, but <laughs> you've got me off track. Sorry, I'm sorry. I, I know. No, but but yes, wanted, they, people are team oriented. I wanted to to hit this point too about the people, you know. And so historically, what happens, what tends to happen, is you have aristocrats, and those aristocrats turn into oligarchs. They degrade from an aristocracy to an oligarchy, right? And then they and they they're not the best people in society anymore. They're just the richest, you know. And so that's when it's an oligarchy, according to Aristotle. And um, they'll usually come out against the king, and they'll say, "Okay, well, the king, you know, you're richer than any one or three of us, but all of us together are richer than you. We have more soldiers than you, and uh, so if we if we get together, we can take over the king. And that's what what, what the, the reference to fascism, the fascies. If mm. if like, you can break one twig, but if you have a bunch of twigs together tied together, then you can't break them. And I always thought that was a reference to we the people, right? I thought, oh, that's a yeah. reference to the people sticking. No, it was a reference to the aristocrats sticking <laughs> the oligarchs against a king. Right. That's and so this great. happened in England with uh, King John gets taken out to a clearing. The aristocrats put a knife to his throat. They say, you're going to sign Magna Carta. Mm -hmm. You don't get to do the law anymore. We do the law. And we're going to create a, a house of lords. Mm -hmm. And now the power will shift from the monarch to the oligarchs. And we will. And now we're going to we're going to call it rule of law, but it's really rule of lawmakers. And now we're the lawmakers. And so now we're in charge, not you. And so what would what would historically happen was the king, he was always in, in risk of getting killed, in jeopardy of getting murdered by the aristocrats. So a, a king would go and appeal to the people and say, "Hey, people." I will give you more political rights if you side with me against the the aristocrats, right? And so like in the Middle Ages, in the, in the time of feudal ages, farmers, the aristocrat, if you were on an aristocrat's estate, he would he would you would do double duty. Part of your life would be a farmer, but then whenever the aristocrat got into war, you had had to do double duty as a soldier. And so when the king lured people off of the aristocrat's estates, he said, hey, come to these free cities. I'm going to call it, call it a free city of Freiburg or whatever. If you come move to this free city, you can vote. And you can't get raped or, or yeah. you have more political rights, yeah. but you have to side with me, the king, against the oligarchs. And so th that's the, the Greek term tyrant is actually that. A tyrant is basically what we think a dictator or a despot. No, a tyrant was somebody from the rich class who betrays the rich class by siding with the people, getting the people on his side to protect him against the aristocrats. So when people were worried about Trump being a tyrant, they kind of were right. He was doing populist rhetoric. He was saying, let's get rid of NATO. Let's get rid of the UN. Let's get rid mm -hmm. of all these things. Let's, uh, the forgotten man, he would use this populist <laughs> rhetoric yeah. to pivot around this this kind of like oligarchical class because Trump, his wealth is based on real estate, not on mercantilism. And uh, Adam Smith says that in chapter 11 of The Wealth of Nations. He says that uh, there are three basic types to make ways to make money. One is through wages. One is through real estate. And he said these two 
rise or fall with the with the nation. So as the nation does better, you do better. As the nation does worse, you do worse. He says there's a third group, however, and this third group is mercantilists, and they make money when they collapse countries Red through Butler. disaster capitalism. He said, if you ever allow this third group to take over your government, mm-hmm. they'll collapse the country. Mm. And so Trump, who is a real estate guy, his wealth was based on nationalism. Mm-hmm. It was, it, like, he does better as the country does better. So he was doing like a, like a ty- he was a classical tyrant in the sense of, hey, side with me against against them, you know. Isn't that overestimating how much power he had? Oh, yeah, of course. But I'm just saying, you know, like some of the rhetoric, but but this is going to happen again. You know, we're, we're right now we're in an oligarchical period and what they're afraid of, what they're terrified of is one of their numbers breaking off and making that populist appeal, whether it's Trump or, or whoever else, it doesn't matter. But that's eventually going to happen because it's happened historically where, where one oligarch gets the people on their side to, to take out the other But they kill those people. Yeah, correct. They identify them, and they look. Philip, Philip Zimbardo, the social scientist, he he did this uh, study in England where they were um, they they had the camera cameras all over the house. They had different people from different walks of life, and he there was one guy. There was a room where people were sitting, and one guy moves a chair. Right, everybody else just sat where the furniture was, and the one guy who moves, he alters his environment. He's like, that's the leader. He knows that he can change things. That's wow. the leader. So, so they're they're basically they've they've expended vast sums of money on identifying leaders and then taking them out. Yeah, I figured they did that before you even saw yeah. them, and they do the same for people who are useful. So you have folks who are uh, identified, in my opinion, as teenagers. I call them created persons. James Comey did something crazy when he was a teenager. Came to the attention of like the federal authorities as he just, he lied on the witness stand about something and it was so convincing. I really think that they were like, wow, we need that guy on our side. He's actually a terrible liar now, I think, but- and John Kerry too. Yeah. yeah, like I think they just identify these people young. So- um, Vivek. <laughs> Vivek who? Ramaswamy. Oh, Vivek, yeah, oh, he's definitely a, a, a slippery. Whatever Look how they, they shifted institutional funds. Uh, Vivek, his, his failing company, Roviant, uh, you know, was was dying. He was doing pharmaceuticals that didn't work. And suddenly uh, the stock price, you know, goes from its lowest low at $3 a share. And it like goes up to like its highest high because they shifted, like the World Economic Forum shifted institutional funds toward his dying company. He suddenly gets rich. He gets this payout, you know, through this manipulation. Yeah. That's very interesting that you would point out a specific example of that because I always noticed that with Obama. I was like, how is he rich all of a sudden? And my husband's like, oh, because he, sell, he sells that book. I'm like, he sells a million copies a year of the same book for 10 years? It's like, yeah. <laughs> I'm like, okay. I don't believe that unless George Soros is buying them and jump dumping them in the middle of the ocean, which he might be. But And then well, there, was, that, yeah. there was a scandal of the Baltimore mayor who did exactly that. She just to get rich, he wrote a book that like basically had blank pages in the middle. Or didn't even write it. Yeah, get yeah. a ghostwriter to write it and, and then, then somebody, just, some oligarch buys yeah, it and that's the way the libraries money. Got yeah. a copy of it. So, um, okay, so I'm going to say that we are, even with, with that the plebes and their plebiscites are just uh, <clears throat> a, a function, like a second order function of these powers and, and that's that. But we still deserve dignity and liberty and uh, the ability to behave morally and the responsibility to do so. Like, I hate welfare because I feel like it takes away the opportunity to do what we're supposed to do, which is develop spiritually through charity and stuff like that. So um, I'll take that. And so tell me, is there anything else that you wanted to talk about um, now or 
on an upcoming episode because I probably didn't let we can, you. We can do an upcoming episode the show um, because I, all. you know, I'm like chatty Kathy, and Daniel needs to shut up now. And no. uh, Monica, Monica is prettier and, and smarter. No, <laughs> I'm supposed to be quiet the entire time, but I was trained as a radio person, so I like I don't think about let the other person, you know, not what not formally trained as an interviewer. I just want to chit chat all the time. You're awesome. No, you're oh. awesome. I love your content. Thank you. Mm. I love to have the conversation. So hopefully if I just don't call them interviews and call them conversations, then I will not disappoint. But uh, yes, let's do more. Let's do more because I love your brain. So, um, okay. Tell people what, where they can find Monica, you. Monica, my eyes are right here. Don't look here. <laughs> don't look here. Look here. <laughs> that is great. I really love that. And for audio listeners, he pointed to his <coughs> skull, his noggin. <laughs> his bald head. Yes, beautiful. <laughs> like, I just want to, you know, peel it and lick his brain. So <laughs> oh, no. that, you metaphorically, metaphorically. <laughs> so let's do it again. But okay. I, I'm going to actually go through this and try to find all of the references that you made and put show notes and Monica Presho. No, sorry, not yet. I'm shifting my URL. Not yet. Monica'sDeepDives.com. And tell people where they can find you uh, just across the board and your books and everything. Yeah, well, you know, like I said at the, at the outset, go buy Actionable Ethics uh, at Amazon.com or something. Uh, or you can find me on YouTube. Just look up the Daniel Natal show. You can see me there. Um, and, uh, and that's it, you know. Um, find me on Twitter, you know, or uh, find me through a uh, legal summons. <laughs> at, nice. At, at Daniel Natal, D-A-N-I-E-L-N-A-T-A-L-1-8. Is that your your Twitter handle or are there yeah. underscores? I don't know. You know it better than you I do. Don't I, don't even, know. I don't even know my Twitter handle. <laughs> there you go. Daniel Natal 18. Yeah. Are there 17 other Daniel that, Natals? It's not a that's uh, common outrageous. name. That's outrageous. I have I to refuse check to that. Accept we that. can't. Yeah. No. No, no, no. I will not let you go until we absolutely <laughs> it is 18. Yeah, confirm okay. that there's Sounds no familiar. underscore or anything Sounds in there. Sounds familiar. So your thing, though, you, I found your show on YouTube. It's the Daniel Natal show on YouTube. But do you also put that up in the podcasting feeds? No. Why not? I refuse. Why? It's funny. It's funny you mention that. I'm about to to launch a a, a show on uh, Apple iTunes. Um, you know, within the next couple of weeks. Um, sub to Daniel's Good. YouTube. Yes, everybody Thanks, subscribe Joe, to Daniel's YouTube. <laughs> Joe is not a Fed, believe it or not. Despite <laughs> his name, he is actually not a Fed. There you go. So, so uh, yes, um, definitely put it on audio. Definitely subscribe to Daniel's. It's just very easy to find on YouTube, Daniel Tal Show. And look to the Monica's Deep Dives for the show notes. But we'll put this up everywhere, you know, in a couple of days. And we'll be back. I think, I think we, this week, we just didn't even begin to crack the code on, on the topics we had planned to talk about. So we'll do it again soon. Yes. Okay. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you, Daniel. <laughs> um, and have a great great rest of your day and we'll see you again soon. Thanks everybody for listening.